President and Sister Romney, President Oaks, distinguished platform guests, and brothers and sisters all, I'm simply grateful to be here with you on this special occasion and to respond to the assignment that came to me several months ago to speak in connection with your special celebration of the institution of the family. I want to commend the Brigham Young University for its special commitment to family life, reflected not only by this special week of substance and counsel, and not only by the curricular concern expressed in its nearly unique College of Family Living, but also for the commitment to the family that this institution expresses in so many other ways. Other universities and colleges teach about the family, but sometimes others view the family as a transitory economic unit in human history, not as an eternal unit. Curricula elsewhere deal with the need for certain skills in family life, which none of us doubts, and with the interrelationships among humans who are temporarily collected as families, but not with individuals as eternal realities. This university and its College of Family Living act from an entirely different point of view, and even though the form may parallel the academic form elsewhere, the operating assumptions and the theological foundations produce a deep and pervasive commitment to family, making what happens on this campus unique. I am grateful that the faculty and students alike on this university campus understand the tandem relationship between theology and identity, between family and eternity. At this university, there is co-equal concern with that nutrition pertaining to the body and that nutrition which pertains to the spirit. We certainly share with the secular world their concern over the diets required for our physical health, but we also assert boldly to a sick and undernourished world that a divine diet has been prescribed for the soul of man, and further, that the primary source of this sucker should be the family. In 1902, President Joseph F. Smith said that it is family life on which the government of the Church is based and perpetuated. I know of no parallel institutional commitment to the family anywhere else in the world. The prophets of the Church have all drawn on the same divine well, and therefore their doctrines and teachings are the same. Seers see not only farther but deeper than other men, taking into account the relationships of various truths and realities. Our late President Harold B. Lee counseled us with the same kind of specificity when he said, Remember that the most important of the Lord's work that you will ever do will be the work that you do within the walls of your own home. Home teaching, bishoprics work, and other Church duties are all important, but the most important work is in the walls of your own home. That wise, candid counsel about comparative worth came from a most able and remarkable administrator, and it came in the context of all it presently had done to fine-tune the institution of the Church. It is significant that the summation of his counsel focused again on the family and on the home. Our prophet President Spencer W. Kimball is one who tirelessly practices pure religion undefiled. I know because I am one of his neighbors. And though the impact of his personal ministrations are by no means limited to his ward or his neighborhood, in his unusual modesty it doesn't occur to President Kimball that in such service he has done anything special. Yet note again that in the midst of this service 
there is the recurring theme, the light motif. President Kimball advises, I like to compare the home evening, family prayer, and other associated activities of the Church for the saving of the family when they are conscientiously carried out with an umbrella. If the umbrella is not opened up, it is little more than a cane and can give little protection from the storms of nature. When the umbrella is spread out, it makes its material taut, and when the rain falls, it runs off, and when the snow falls, it slides off, and when the hail comes, it bounces off, and when the wind blows, it is diverted around the umbrella. End of quote. Brothers and sisters, we are at a point in human history when, unfortunately, it is no longer merely sprinkling. The rains have begun to fall, and all this at a very point in history, ironically, when so many umbrellas are being folded up and put away. I am so grateful to belong to a Church that does not allow itself to be caught up in the fads and fashions of a particular age or time. Samuel Callan rightly warned that a Church which weds itself to the cultures of the day will be a widow within each succeeding age. Indeed, because the Church resists the fads and fashions of a particular age, it is seen by some undiscerning observers as being unresponsive. But the truth is that it is the very sensitivity of the Church to what really matters that keeps it, too, from tumbling off the straight and narrow. It is the very responsiveness of the Church. It is the very sensitivity of the Church to the unchanging things and to revelation, to the things that really matter, that gives mankind its best chance for increasing human happiness and reducing human misery, whether the issue pertains to the family or to some other key teaching in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we are living in a time when the Lord will do as he said he would, bring forth the Church out of obscurity and out of the wilderness to shine forth clear as the moon, and fair as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. The brightness of the Church is the combined illumination of the individuals who comprise its citizenry, setting the Church apart from the dimness, disarray, and disorder of the world. The analogy of an army suggests to me the sense of organization, destination, direction, and unity. The banners under which the army marches—an army, by the way, that seeks no earthly kingdom—the banners may well be the banners of belief, the unique doctrines to which Church members are committed and which we must raise aloft. When pondering recently the definition of truth as given in the Doctrine and Covenants, I was led to read in Jacob these interesting and interlocking words. For the Spirit speaketh the truth, and lieth not. Wherefore it speaketh of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be, plainly, for the salvation of our souls. Note, brothers and sisters, the presence of that powerful adverb, really. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the Church of Jesus Christ deal plainly with the real realities, things as they really are and as they really will be. And one of the things that can really be eternal is the family. 
Therefore, real education must take into account that special knowledge that God has made available to us about things as they really are and as they really will be, the kind of education for eternity that President Kimball has urged us all to obtain. Isn't it ironical that some of those who are most vigorous in taking the American family apart are also among those who are first to complain when then the family does not work? Isn't it ironical that an age in which we are learning almost feverishly about the most ecologically sound and the most efficient and economic ways of producing energy or protein to help other human beings, that in such an age we should be so incredibly blind, blind as were the ancient members of the tribe of Judah whom Jacob described as forever looking beyond the mark, because we seem to be forever looking beyond the family when it comes to those means by which we can produce good human beings. The relative spiritual as well as the physiological efficiencies of systems is a justifiable concern. I am told by a member of your faculty that beef cattle foraging on an open range require 20 pounds of feed in order to produce one pound of gain, whereas a chicken with a good balanced diet can produce one pound of gain for every two pounds of feed. The one system is incredibly more efficient than the other in the production of meat protein. The family is incredibly more efficient than any other institution in the production of good human beings. In fact, the sum of all we do in our political, educational, and economic institutions is not sufficient to offset the deficits in the home. We have far too many human beings foraging out on deficient homesteads, far too many governmental programs which attempt abortively to substitute a less efficient system of helping humans than the home. It is the home we must rescue, repair, and sustain. And only when the home does its job can the other institutions of society do theirs. If we are really concerned about the most economical way of achieving human happiness, these are gains that must be made through the family, with the help, of course, of the other institutions. Yet so many fail to hear the crash of the surf of statistics that washes over us regularly, generated by an abundance of research that shows forth clearly the importance of family and of early life experience. There is in the secular world, brothers and sisters, either a failure to generalize from this research, or when the generalizations emerge, there is a failure to act upon them. It is almost as if the secular world condemned itself to act like Sisyphus who was condemned to roll a huge boulder to the edge of a mountaintop, only to have it come tumbling down, whereupon the process is repeated endlessly. Indeed, the sincere Sisyphus syndrome is all about us. By contrast, the eternalism approach of the gospel of Jesus Christ lays great stress on the innocence of the newborn and on the importance of helping that individual streamlet nearest its source so it can achieve identity and maintain its purity. Secularism, on the other hand, tends to become too fascinated with building up vast purification plants downstream. Ironically, secularists have difficulty agreeing on what dirt is, on what is to be filtered out even then. 
While more and more research and information are always desirable, it seems to me, brothers and sisters, the question has to be asked, how much more research do we need before we, be, we begin to accept the realities of how almost relentlessly parental patterns are projected into posterity? How much more research do we need with regard to the sources and the importance of self-esteem? There is an ecology that pertains to the world of man's spirit and to his self-esteem. And we must begin to think about the deprivation of the individual storehouse of self-esteem as a vital community concern. We have a stake in each other's self-esteem. How much more research does the world need before we can accept parents as pivotal and before we focus on the family without apology and without half-heartedness? What good does it do to reach a conclusion, as one major research project did recently, finding, quote, that family background has more influence than genes or environment on educational attainment, occupational status, and income? What good does it do to reach that kind of conclusion if nothing is done to assist the institution of the family? Of course there are rogue parents, just as there are rogue policemen occasionally. Of course there are some who, through no fault of their own, do not marry. Of course there are some who, through no fault of their own, experience defective homes. But these exceptions are not reasons enough for abandoning this remarkable resource, the family. In fact, the family is the tilt point for a vast number of souls who can go either way in life, to alienation and anger or to sweetness and to service. It may be true that those who do not believe in a God who is a loving parent and who is the father of the human family will also never really be able to accept the eternal importance of the institution of the family, except as something that is socially useful. The assumptions in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the assumptions of the secular world about the nature of man and the nature of the universe are far, far apart. Little wonder that we arrive at different conclusions or that we have different priorities. How important, therefore, it is that we remain at our posts as centuries over doctrines and teachings like that concerning the family, even if the world in its mistaken but sincere way seems to be headed in entirely different directions. The Latter-day Saint ought to understand, for instance, that the wars of tomorrow are this day being forged in the overheated families of today. How many dictators and assassins do we need to study in order to understand the consequences of distortion in the home? How many more examples do we need, including the energy crisis, where a few control the resources needed by many, before we realize that the problem is not really one of resources, for the Lord has told us there is enough and to spare. The real challenge is selfishness and our human delivery systems. And where indeed can one learn firsthand about selflessness and sharing? In the home, where such skills and attitudes tend to be learned, if they are learned at all. Many citizens today, for instance, are alarmed, and rightfully so, when they see a vast oil slick develop which may be headed for the habitat of wildlife or a culinary water resource. Isn't it interesting that only the seers seem able to see the approaching tide of effluence flowing from parental permissiveness 
that is now in the process of engulfing so many. So few other voices are raised in alarm. The ears of the secular world are attuned to the messages that come from the Paul Revere's, not the prophets. And there appear to be so many Paul Revere's writing about, issuing so many Jeremiah's, that the crucial warnings are being drowned out. Isn't it interesting that at a time when we ought to know better about the limitations of what legislation can do to change human behavior, that some women prefer legal power to righteous influence. Some may choose to ignore or to rechannel a maternal instinct, brothers and sisters, but they cannot rise above it. Isn't it interesting that the secular world now directs our attention, with certain justifications to be sure, to the unmet needs of women when the most common tragedy in the modern home is the malfunctioning father, who so often leaves his post untended and who is so often insensitive to the needs of his wife? Isn't it interesting with regard to the matter of individual fulfillment, a natural and basic human need, that some fail to observe that one of the great advantages of being fulfilled is that one does not have to spend all of his or her time thinking about being fulfilled? Those I know and admire who have deep and abiding testimonies do show some differences in their preferences and certain dimensions of their lifestyle, but on the things that really matter they are incredibly alike. Isn't it interesting that at a time when patriotism has been called into question, some fail to realize that we cannot really have a sense of country without a sense of kinship, and that we cannot have a sense of kinship without family, and one cannot have a sense of family without parents? Isn't it interesting that in a time when we want to demand increasing accountability from each other, that so many fail to realize that no deep-seated sense of accountability can exist without reference to absolute values and truths, such as the brotherhood of man. It isn't, of course, simply that the gospel of Jesus Christ contains all the correct principles for human conduct, but it is also the way in which these principles are interwoven with each other. Secularism often seizes upon a single true principle and elevates it above all others. This act of isolation does not make the principle any less true, but to isolate any correct principle is to make it monastic and to turn it into a principle vagrant and homeless. How many today live within the clean, well-lit prison of one principle? Elevating any correct principle to the plane of a religion is poor policy. Just as one person makes a poor church, one principle makes a poor religion. Principles can become prodigal, too, as well as people. They can be estranged in a far country and can be spent with little to show. Most every secular cause about which I know anything at all usually focuses on a single principle or concern, but it is an act of isolation, not of correlation. It is the orthodox orchestration, brothers and sisters, of the principles found in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is necessary for human happiness. One would be amused at the so-called new moral geometry, with its alien angles, fluid lines, and restless unfixed points, if the human consequences were not so tragic. Insofar as he has it, where does man suppose he gets his inborn sense of righteous indignation anyway? And if our sense of righteous indignation does not rest on some divine moral absolutes, why should anyone pay any attention to us?
When we see the imperfections around us, the believer sees these imperfections as an invitation to help. For those who see life, man, and the universe without looking through the lens of the gospel, imperfection means rejection. As one wise writer observed, when a man hates himself, how can he stomach the imperfections of society? Where better can we begin to learn to cope with the imperfections and individual shortfalls than in the family? Where can we learn better how to forgive, how to love, and how to cope with our failures than in the home? Strategically speaking, the choices are clear—family or anomie. Isn't it ironical that those who have been described as the new impuritans in their iconoclasmania not only reject the existence of God, but the existence of Satan himself, and in their celebration of sensual things they end up in the employ of the very adversary whose existence they scoff at? The great trap is sprung because Satan's most powerful desire is that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Our task, brothers and sisters, is to hold up to the world the true picture of mankind, who we really are, things as they really are, and things as they really will be. We can best learn that we are a child of God by experiencing that kind of relationship in a home. We can best learn in a home that we are important, that we matter, and that there are at least a few who love us. Those who have not known love are more likely to have a special struggle in accepting the existence of a God whose greatest attribute is His love. Those who have not known forgiveness are more apt to have difficulty forgiving others. Those who have never had to be accountable will have greater difficulty learning to be accountable themselves and are apt to be more shrill in their demands about the accountability of others. Those who have not been trusted will find it more difficult to trust. Those who have not developed deserved self-esteem will find it more difficult to esteem others. Those who have not known peace, both in their homes and in their souls, will find it more difficult to fashion a world that is full of peace because conflict seems so normal. Those who do not specifically know what the conditions of righteousness are will find it difficult to become righteously indignant. And those who have not known the rigors of repentance will not be able to cope as well with the stress of change. Several years ago, an astute friend of mine, Dr. Jack Adamson, concluded a commencement address by recalling John Milton's phrase concerning England's legendary image about how St. Michael the warrior angel would appear off the coast of Cornwall to save England from her external menaces, then chiefly Spain. Milton's counsel was that the angel in England had for too long been looking seaward for England was soon to be engulfed in a great civil war. Milton's poetic plea was, Look homeward, angel, now, and with pity and with compassion. That counsel is appropriate for us as Americans and for others. For today, in yet another sense, for too long we have looked outside ourselves and beyond our homes in trying to improve the human condition. But the message of the poets as well as the prophets, is look homeward now with compassion. May God bless us all so to do. I pray in the name of that special family member, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Amen.